millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Behind your barricade Yeah, but how long can I stay? Behind your barricade Where true values seldom stray joining us for stop and search episode five on the distraction pieces network brought to you by Acast in association with Leap uk bit of a mouthful but here we go let's not hang about let's go straight into this episode because i did an introduction on the night that's what it says on the tin this one's about drug journalism and i really really enjoyed this one and if you can share about Give us a a like and a rating on iTunes. If you can give us a review on iTunes, it really helps. We've got some some really good ratings and reviews so far, so if you fancy adding, please do. So let's go straight in. This is Drug Journalism. Right then, thank you everybody for joining us again. This is Stop and Search episode five, I think. Sounds about right. But today we're doing it with journalists. And I just said to Max, this is possibly the most nervous I've been because I like to think I kind of dabble in journalism in a weird, soft, Tesco stripey sort of way. So when you're faced with these giants of the industry, you certainly feel it. So introducing, we have on his phone, <laughs> just like any journalist should be, we have Mike Power, who is the author of Drugs 2.0, investigative journalist, award-winning, mixed mag guardian, you name it, Mr. Mike Power. So, yeah, I've been handed the microphone without a first clue what I'm going to say. That's fine, I'm still doing it. <laughs> but no, thanks very much, and uh, yeah, nice to be here. And then we also have... Max Daly, who, if you know anything about drug journalism, you'll know Max. He has covered everything. And when I was doing research, it was just one of those things I just didn't know where to pick up next because there's just so, so, so much. So if you know the book Narcomania, we have the co-author. If you follow Vice, you'll know Max Daly. 
Uh, yeah, thanks for coming, and uh, hopefully it'll be an interesting chat. And then we have Decorating Head, who, again, probably needs no introduction at all. Guardian journalist, possibly one of the most honest journalists that you'll ever read. Uh, I've been reading over some, some of Decker's work, and it's genuinely quite mind-blowing. It really is. So please give it up for Decorating Head. Yeah, it's really nice to be here. Um, I'm really here because I interviewed Neil Woods, the chair of Leap, a few weeks ago, and, uh, and he asked me to. I feel like I'm sitting next to two people who really know their stuff, and I wrote about drugs a long, long time ago, so... Well, actually, uh, that's, that's quite a good place to start, because one of the things that I picked up on was you wrote uh, The Pursuit of the Perfect E, which in 2002, I'd imagine, was quite quite forward thinking. I, I, I can't imagine that there was much of an acceptance for the culture then, what there might be now. I'd imagine that it's more acceptable now to have that kind of conversation. Did you find that at all? Yeah, I completely misjudged the mood. Um, I d I, you're absolutely right, but I didn't become aware of that until after I'd published the book. You know, I spent, like lots of people, I spent most of the 90s sort of falling in and out of nightclubs and ecstasy just seemed completely part of the fabric. It didn't seem like a thing. It was just any more than sort of chewing gum or tea or coffee or washing up liquid is a thing. It's just part of your life. Um, or it was part of my life and part of my friend's lives. And I made that sort of classic 20-something mistake of assuming that it was therefore part of everyone's life. So uh, I, I did write a book about going around the world trying to buy the perfect E. But it was really just, I thought of it as a sort of travel device, an interesting way into lots of sort of subcultures and interesting places and, you know, obviously quite fun along the way. Um, when, when I read the reviews, it was quite interesting the way that they were constructed because they were very much complimentary of your style, what you wrote, but then it just got to that drug bit. It's like, but we can do without that. Mm. Which is quite bizarre because it, it almost kind of just transitions... It led, as you said, it led the narrative on what you were trying to do. It was a very novel way of doing a travel book. Well, I felt really embarrassed about it, because when it published, everyone thought that I'd tried to sort of devise a really funny, naughty, daring, kind of, oh, I've written a book about drugs. And I was mortified. I was really embarrassed, because it literally hadn't even occurred to me that it would be looked at like that. I thought that I was writing about something quite normal. And I discovered that, to a lot of people, it was a thing. It was obviously I'd kind of come up with this kind of racy device. And that really embarrassed me. I didn't even think of it as a book about drugs. It was just a kind of way into, into writing about all sorts of things. And so, and I think, I don't know, but I think that's changed. I think if I was to write that book now, I don't think people would see it in the same way. I think now it would be, and you two will have a much better sense of this than I, and clearly I had a terrible sense of it last time around, so I'm not sure if my, my instincts are good now, but I think people would, people would be less, there would be less of a sense of, oh, and it was faux outrage, of course it was faux outrage, you know, most outrage is faux, and in that case it certainly was, but nonetheless everyone felt l legitimized in pretending to disapprove or think that this was in somehow sort of just juvenile. I think that might have changed, but I don't know. You guys will have a much better sense. Yeah, I mean, it, it, <clears throat> it's weird because that time that you wrote that is... Um, this is me being a train spotter, stato person, but um, it was kind of almost, you know, it, it, the height of ecstasy use, but less culturally acceptable, whereas now um, ecstasy... Well, since then, ecstasy use have, has fallen, generally, and but recently, the last couple of years, gone up. But now, again, now it's a lot more culturally acceptable. 
and normalised. I really like the bit in your book, Decker, where you discuss the kind of the, the psychology of backpackers and how backpackers are actually just the same as rich people anywhere in the world. And I think anyone that focused on just the drugs aspect of your book actually missed a, a much wider travelogue. It was a really interesting book, I felt, not just like limited to drugs, you know. Well, what happened after it is I thought, I'm never, ever, ever going to write about drugs again because I don't want to be that girl who writes about drugs, you know, and I, and I constantly would sort of turn things down because um, I didn't want to be identified as that. And I don't know if that would be a problem now. I mean, both of you would be identified, obviously, in that way. Have either of you had any misgivings about that or has it caused dramas or are you fine to be drugs journalists? At one point, after I had the commission for Drugs 2.0, I felt really um, exposed, you know? I felt like I was about to write a story that no-one had really done before and that was quite unusual and that involved certain personal elements and certainly some personal obsessions over the years. Plus, there was a, a kind of just a social-cultural point that I needed to document. Um, and, yeah, I did. I thought, I don't want to be the drugs guy, you know? It's like, there. as a freelance journalist, you need to have a wide portfolio. And you need to have as much kind of, you know, as much flexibility as you can. So yeah, to, to go off and write a hundred thousand words about buying drugs on the internet is quite niche. <laughs> so how did you start on that? What originally was the idea for Drug Three Point Zero? It's connected to Max actually. Um, Max asked me. Max was editing Drug Scope at the time, and he asked me to go and uh, visit a, a cocaine plantation in Colombia. And so I went. And I just saw the futility of the war on drugs, really, for the first time, up close and personal, in the, the, the Western Magdalena area of, uh, of Colombia. And when I came back, I just started to think about the drug issue more widely and saw that there was a, a kind of a, a, an emergence of an internet culture around the sale of drugs rather than just the discussion of it. And it was from there that the whole methadrone story came from. Me, me and Max broke that story in, uh, in Drugscope. And then for the next few years, it was just a, a complete free-for-all in the media with, uh, you know, with the legal high story. So that was the, that was the kind of jumping-off point for me. But look further back, personally, um, I'm, I, you know, I, I went to a lot of uh, warehouse parties and asset house clubs when I was 18 and 19 and loved it. So I've always been interested in, 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 in ecstasy particularly. So, on the back of what Decker said, do you think that both the industry and the culture has changed since that early 2000s? Inherently, it must have, but the, especially the, the drug journalism sector, it almost seems to be a sector in its own right now. You can do stuff within that that is fairly, I'd imagine, profitable. Profitable? I don't know, actually. <laughs> Maybe not profitable. There's, 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 there's not that yeah. many of us. There's not that many, like... Yeah. There's not many people who can just... Specialise in drugs. I think we're we're a few people. They, you, know, you can get like twenty journalists in here going, yeah, I write about drugs. You could do get twenty journalists writing here probably about tractors, but or not, quinoa. not about yeah, yeah, twenty or quinoa, people write yeah, about yeah. quinoa every week. I mean, Health. I don't know what there is to say about it, but it's. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, and I don't know if that's. Um, both of you have, you know, have done sort of proper investigative sort of reporting work about it. And in a way, does that make it more respectable than if you write about, um, you know, taking drugs yourself? I don't know. I always try to keep a distance between mm. my own personal experiences of it because I didn't want that to actually colour the reader's perspective of it. Um, and no, I've... I've uh, 
I, I did that. I, I drew a kind of a, a strong line between me and that, and I just thought to look at it instead as a kind of social, cultural, legal, technical kind of phenomenon. I think that that was my approach. Yeah, I mean, no one cares what what any of us particularly do take at the weekends. Um, I think our skill is not in particularly taking drugs. Um, our skill is is <laughs> <laughs> is kind of paying a picture of 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 people who do take drugs and and everything else surrounding it. It's a documentary, you know. It's documentary journalism. It's investigative documentary journalism. I'd, I'd almost go one step further that there is a lot of people in the sector, but there's not in drug journalism but not many people that do it right and do it well. And I think that's the difference in what all three of you do in, in your respective places in the industry, is that you get people like me that are quite, you know, I don't do it for a living, I, I do it, I'm a drug policy marketeer, but at the same time you have to get involved in certain bits of writing, this, that and the other. But when you look at the leagues that you lot frequent, it is a completely different field. So do you ever get annoyed at the sort of lower levels when they're trying to put across a certain point or a certain article and you think, come on, guys, leave it to the, leave it to us professionals over here. I don't know. Every time you see a piece in the mainstream media about drugs, it's always framed within a certain kind of psycholinguistic context, which is a crime, punishment, innocence, death, child, lack of opportunity. You know, it's it's never actually done in a in a rounded way. It's never done in a way that actually uh, reflects the reality of most drug users' choices to use drugs. It's always done in this kind of crime and punishment model. You know, crime and punishment or social deprivation. But really, you know, the reason that people take drugs is because they're enormous fun. You know, they're very enjoyable. Um, and they, yeah, okay, you've, you can have problems with them, you can have difficulties with them. But ultimately, people don't take them because they're sat desperate at home wondering what to do with their lives. They do it because it's fun. And that's never acknowledged, I think, that kind of the ubiquity of drug use and the ubiquity of pleasure. It's never really acknowledged. It's never actually honestly mentioned. So I've, I've always tried to kind of touch on that in the writing I've done just to report the facts. And that is where you were quite honest, wasn't it, Decker, mm. in, your, in your book, is that you were probably one of the first public figures to come out and say, yeah, I use this drug, uh, MDMA, if, if people haven't read it yet. And as I said, you, you got a very mixed reaction on that. You, uh, Again, I mean, I don't know if I would have done it if I'd known... That it would be that it would raise eyebrows. I'd, I'm not sure, you know. I wasn't a kind of conscious pioneer or anything like that. I just misread the situation. <laughs> um, but that fundamental, that fundamental thing that you can write about drugs until the cows come home, as long as it's framed in this kind of crime and punishment problematic mm. terms, is true. I mean, it, and it is kind of weird that we write that we read so much about drugs, and it would be like when you were talking. I was trying to think what the analogy would be. And it would almost be as if every football match was reported and every transfer and every kind of everything to do with football was reported without anyone mentioning that we like watching it, that it was a kind of problem in all kinds of different ways. It's a, Absolutely. It's a really strange... But the other thing that really... The, the main thing that winds me up about or upsets me about coverage of drug stories is just... There was an absolutely classic example of it on Radio 4... Call you and yours, I think, this week about legal highs, and it's it's not just that um, the reporting is inaccurate, factually inaccurate. I mean, you know, lots of reporting is factually inaccurate about all kinds of things, but it's almost as if it's 
I don't quite want to say deliberately, but it's framed in a way that almost makes it inevitable that things will be exaggerated. So, you know, the lovely, cosy, you and yours, consumer affairs presenter is doing a phone-in about legal highs and asking people to call in and talk about their experiences, whether the fact that they've now been criminalised has made any difference to their lives, etc., etc. And at one point, she very, she blithely, re she says that, you know, these legal highs have cost over 300 lives, you know, I think it was either over two or over 300 lives, hundreds of lives. And one of her guests corrects her and says, I don't think that's right. She says, well, it's certainly hundreds, it's certainly hundreds. And then she has a quick check. She says, oh, sorry, it's 31. Sorry, it's hundreds of prosecutions. And that's just allowed to go. And had he not said that, I think I might have just died. Had he not said that, then everybody sitting at home listening to you and yours on Radio 4 is going to imagine that there's a massive difference between 31 and over 300. And I think if you were an, econ an economics journalist or a political journalist, you wouldn't be... You couldn't get away with that degree of inaccuracy and the fact that it's always an exaggerated inaccuracy. You know, the likelihood that she would have said 31 when actually it was hundreds is literally non-existent. And that's what upsets me, that that's just kind of built into the reporting system, the impulse to exaggerate. And that I, I don't see another area of journalism in which that's taken as read I don't, or, or allowed to pass. Yeah, I mean, this is basically the reason why I wrote my book, Narcomania, is... <clears throat> because there was just like this year, decades of steaming bullshit written about drugs. <laughs> and so I was just kind of stepping into an area. It was, it was kind of like falling off a log. I mean, I'm naturally quite a lazy person anyway, but it was just <clears throat> so easy to, if you know some truths about it, you know, if you, if you regularly speak to the experts, to the academics, to, if you hang about with the people who take drugs, if you understand the various scenes, if you're there and thereabouts, it's not hard to, to go, look, this is, bu this is bullshit, this isn't, um, which is what journalists are supposed to do. They're supposed to like, um, tell people the, the reality behind the situation. There was a statistic that just came to me when you were talking then, and there's this kind of constant refrain in the media that every time you take ecstasy, it's a game of Russian roulette, yeah? And the odds in a game of Russian roulette are six to one. So I decided to actually do some journalism and to do some maths. And I checked out the kind of the Office for National Statistics. And in 2014, there were 43 ecstasy-related deaths. And the level of ecstasy use in the UK at the time between 16 to 59-year-olds was 1.6%. So that means 600,000 ecstasy users. Now, that's not six to one. In fact, it is 0.0716%. So we're having uh, an enormous over-exaggeration of the dangers of ecstasy, which prevents people from listening to the truth about the dangers of ecstasy. So to me, it's counterproductive as well as completely unprofessional and inaccurate. But the thing I don't understand is why. Why? Do the people who are writing this, these inaccuracies know that they're inaccurate, or do they care? Or I, I just, I'm, I'm genuinely perplexed. I don't understand uh, how we've arrived at a system. To be honest, it tends to be the police who say the, um, the, the, the Russian roulette thing. Um, and it's faithfully but, reported. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It's never questioned. And that, to me, is the point of journalism. You, you, you question things and you interrogate them. And then if they stand up, you publish them. But that doesn't seem to be happening. There seems to be a sliding in standards somehow. And, this yeah, and the reason is, is because, sorry, Jason, uh, the, the reason is, is because, you know, newspapers absolutely love drug scare stories. They love 
stories. You know, in, in journalism, we call them marmalade, marmalade droppers. <coughs> People having breakfast, and the old guy gets spooning his marmalade onto the toast, <laughs> reading his Daily Telegraph in the morning, and then he reads a story about something, you know, you know, really kind of, kind of crazy, or whatever, and he drops his marmalade because he's so shocked. So, so that's why you get a lot of drug stories in the Daily Mail and the Daily Telegraph because they want to, they, they know it's a scare story, they, they absolutely love it. And that's kind of, you know, the, it's kind of the same reason why I got interested in writing about drugs in the first place, because it's more interesting, when I was working for local newspapers, it's more interesting than the, the local summer fate. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of, it's a crime story, it's, it's a health story, it's policing story, it's everything, it's cultural. Um, so, yeah. I mean, Narcomania, for those that haven't read it, is, is just amazing. To the point where I've lent it out, I've actually lent all of your books out, and I haven't had them returned, so I'm, I'm literally halfway through all of them, because I was hoping to bring them so I can get them signed. And I'm totally nicking the marmalade dropper, that is a fantastic phrase, but in my case it'd be Nutella, quite clearly. But Narcomania, you really did strip it down to absolute grassroots level, didn't you? You, you covered pretty much every single facet within the drug scene, not the street level. Um, was there any point that you was in jeopardy when you was in those kind of realms? And still, you still do that kind of investigative work. Do you get... Yeah, um, I, I, I'm, I'm naturally quite a coward. Um, but I, I always end up putting myself in danger. So I don't know what that... There must be some sort of medical thing that, uh, that that's called. But, um, <laughs> I think the adrenaline rush. <laughs> idiot. But, um, that's the but, medical term. <laughs> But um, yeah, no, I ended up um, going to to Scunthorpe actually, um, and meeting up with some big gangster there. And he was a kind of like violent. I knew he was a violent Scottish gangster guy who was running Scunthorpe's uh, drug trade. And we kind of met. We 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 kind of me and my co-author Steve. Uh, we met him at Scunthorpe Station. I'd never been there before. Um, and he picked us up in his car. And then he did, does the whole thing where he, he kind of drives round up and down to try and lose the cops in case they're after him. And he takes us to a Michelin-starred restaurant near Scunthorpe. I know, that, that, that fucking exists. <laughs> um, he knows all the people who own it. And um, we, we just, we never really paid people for interviews that much. Maybe we'd give like 20 quid to a heroin user or something like that, just as a, you know, look, we'd taken up some of your time, you know, buy some drug, I mean, sorry, buy some water. <laughs> and, <laughs> and um, yeah, it was just one of our things. We just don't pay people loads of money. We didn't, ha didn't have any money at all anyway. Totally skinned. And so, so, so we kind of turn up at this thing, even, I don't even think I, we really afforded the train fare there, but we turn up at this restaurant, Michelin star, and we're okay, we'll, we'll, we'll take the hit of 300 quid of this ridiculous restaurant with this tattooed thug chatting to us. And he, but he was a very interesting guy for our book. You know, he was uh, a really good example of, a, of how a, a, a drug gang works, you know, right from the bottom to the top and how he gets his cocaine and how he cuts it up and all this stuff, an interesting bloke. And then he was like, oh, I'm not going to try and do it in a Glaswegian accent, am I? Um, yeah, you are. <laughs> Good, yeah. <laughs> yeah, do that. No. 
I won't. Okay. I, won't I know I won't do it. It's, it's too bad. But um, <laughs> but he was he was just basically threat threatening us kind of from the off, just going like, just what are you going to give us some money, or whatever for this? And we were just like what? And we were like, no, we're like our policy or during this book, we've been doing this book for a couple of years. We never paid anyone. No, you pay me for money. Um, shit, that was a terrible, wasn't it? But um, anyway, so he started going right. Um, we were going like, is is two hundred quid all right? And we was like, no. And this is why he's eating kind of like calf's liver on a bluchon, I've just made up a word, of pineapple, whatever. And um, anyway, the money, and he, he just goes, right, you give us a grand, otherwise there's no interview at all. And, and me and Steve were looking at each other going, fucking hell, man, we are skiing. We're literally going to be started going like, look, we've both, got re we've both recently had children. Like, <laughs> we've got to bring up these children. Um, it, I, started get a bit, uh, I started getting a bit scared because we knew, how, we knew he'd kick the shit out of people and, and put a lot of people in hospital. One of his favourite things was um, putting keys in his fist and stabbing people's face. So I was, and we were in this middle of nowhere in, out, out of Scunthorpe and we were a bit like kind of... I spent a bit of time in the toilet. But um, anyway, so he was like, OK, give us a grand. And, uh, and, and, we, and we had a kind of a middleman and we arranged through the middleman that we would put a grand in his bank account. <laughs> Is he still waiting for it? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, anyway, but um, and he uh, once that was all right. Is he was all like, it's all about respect. It's respect. So it wasn't like he needed the money because he was fucking loaded. But it was all about us as journalists. He thought journalists were loaded. By the way, he thought we were rich. He was going, you've written for the Guardian. You've written for the Times. <laughs> You're rich, and I was going like fucking skin, mate. Anyway, but anyway, so so the deal was done. We put a thousand pounds as an account, but even though I did lose some weight in this one hour, I couldn't eat any food either. Um, we got an amazing story out of him. It was brilliant, but he, we, in the end, we did have to pay the thousand pounds. But and then he took us back to the station, and then we only heard later that he had machetes in the back of his car. And that if we hadn't have given the money, he would have possibly injured us. So, yeah, that's, that's one of many, actually. But um, so, yeah. I think that, that's suffering for your art, I think, right there. Jeez, that's... I mean, Neil Woods, who's normally here, but he's, he's just coming back from Best of All, he's got some great stories like that. I mean, you've, you've both interviewed or worked with Neil. I don't know how he did that thing that he I did. I know, I mean, you can see why he's burnt out now, because to go through that kind of trauma and stress, it's just it's unfathomable to me. But, I mean, you, you've taken a different kind of risk, haven't you, Mike? Because you, you did an amazing investigation on basically creating your own drug, which is in itself a, a risk, but just very different to the one that Max just detailed. Yeah, yeah, I, I invented a, a legal version of the first drug that John Lennon and Paul McCartney ever took in a laboratory in China, had it synthesised, imported it to the UK, just to demonstrate uh, the, the, the facile nature of British drug laws where... You know, but until the recent uh, Novel Psycho Psychoactive Substances Act, um, there were named drugs within kind of the, the schedules in, in British law. And if you were to just, you know, have a, a slight chemical tinker with one of those uh, with one of those chemicals, then it would be rendered legal. So I, I kind of thought, how can I do this in an interesting way, and how can I do it in a way which will kind of demonstrate the shift between drug culture in the 1960s and drug culture in the 21st century? You know. 
So today's is obviously mediated by the internet. It's possible to do all of the research and find the synthesis. So yeah, I imported um, five grams of six methylphenometrazine <laughs> to um, a uh, yeah a, a kind of letterbox place in King's Cross near where I work in the Guardian, which is a regular gig of mine. And I popped out at lunchtime to go and pick up this drug and uh, had to walk around the streets of London with five grams of white powder in my pocket and then have it tested in Cardiff University. And it was, yeah, it was a, it was a, a, a legal version of the, the first drug. It was a, a kind of slimming tablet that John Lennon and um, Paul McCartney used to take. They were called uh, Preladin tablets back in the day, um, tombstones. And they were uh, just very strong, long-lasting stimulants, which, uh, yeah, after I did that piece as well, it was funny because in the, in the intervening weeks, another 10 versions of that drug came to the market. <laughs> So I felt quite responsible for that, really, do you know what I mean? But equally, if it wasn't me, then someone else would have done it, and I was just quick, and I had a few contacts that could help me. But it didn't cost much. And that's the great thing about your book, is that um, I was speaking to someone quite recently, and the fact that you're very much involved in how the revolution has happened with drug buying now, the fact that we don't necessarily have to go out on the street and do it, you can do it on your laptop, has... To, in the time that you've worked within drug culture, has it changed to such a degree that now you know we use terms like designer drugs and things like that? Would you say that it has gone that route? There's been loads of changes. I think that the, the legal high story was a kind of sideshow for a few years when the law was muddy. Now that the law is just so incredibly you know, overt and, and, and ridiculous, there's, there's no room for novel psychoactive substances anymore. Um, but really, that the, the law, once again, has fallen out of step with culture, where huge amounts of people are buying huge amounts of drugs and I mean kilos of MDMA kilos of cocaine using Bitcoin, using the dark web and using PGP encryption and the Royal Mail, that's happening today you know, it's like if you or I or anyone in this room wanted to set up as a heroin dealer in the morning you could do it within 10 minutes and I mean a major yeah. league, seriously? Absolutely really? Yeah. yeah, you can buy bulk pure heroin on the dark net um, in half kilo quantities kilo quantities and have it posted to your house and then sell it in your local neighbourhood at whatever price you like. And that's the reality. That's the, the, the current... I mean, that's the avant-garde edge of the, of the drug culture. But, you know, email used to be avant-garde. Yeah, can I, can I just bump in there? Um, I did a story a year or two ago about these um, pretty young students from Leeds, I think oh, it was, yeah, who, um, who, who just set up their... You know, they were like the modern drug traffickers. You know, they, they were kids. They were doing a... They were doing a kind of um, economic, international economics um, degree or whatever. So you kind of knew what they're talking about. And they set up a, you know, an international drugs uh, importing business from their shitty student flat in Leeds. And they got quite a decent amount of time for it as well. They got caught, obviously. But, um, but I mean, anyone can be an international drug trafficker now. It's like classic disintermediation. You know, there's no... There's no connection between the dealer and the and the customer. It's you know all of those middlemen have been cut out, so prices are down, quality's up, competition's up. There's feedback. How is it systems. policed in terms of trust? Um, if I send you yeah. a load of bitcoins over the dark net because I'm wanting half a kilo of heroin tomorrow morning, yeah. how do I know that you're not going to send me baking powder? What's the there's a, a feedback system. It's like eBay. So oh, it's like Uber. Yeah, you can just check and you can see okay. a five star, and people will say like. Sent me 250 grams of heroin, purity 65%. Thank you very much. 
you know. So, is, so that, is this an example of self-regulation? Is it the fact yeah. that we've already kind of got a regulatory process which some of us are campaigning for? It already exists within a cultural level. It does. It, it exists on on the download, you know. But in this, like I say, you know, the the internet was once the most arcane and unusual thing. People didn't used to buy any food on the internet or clothes or music mm. or anything. We buy everything on the internet now. But Mike, do you mean you're describing a violence-free drug economy? I don't think there is such a thing. I think, mm. if I'm really honest, I think all uh, I think all economy, all, all capitalism is inherently violent in one way or another, you know, to be slightly Marxist about it. Um, but it is a, it, it's, it's a market system in which um, violence is reduced, certainly. You know, it has to be because there's less contact between customer and vendor. Mm. Well, the, like the worst violence, I suppose, is nicking. Nicking? As in, like, when the, you've got the... Uh, the websites that just nick all the money. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, well, well, very regularly. I would say the, in the last five years, I've watched over 40 different markets steal all of the funds that the users held in a kind of trust or escrow account. So they walk away with about once a year, someone will steal about 40 or 50 million dollars from anonymous drug users that have got absolutely no comeback. So, of course, there's no safety, there's no standards, it's just a case of... Get, even though there is accountability, because as you said, you're, cultural accountability, mm. there's not necessarily the regulated markets which someone like myself and Tom Lloyd would advocate. Yeah. And do you so, so, can I just be clear? So, the risk isn't in buying... You don't expose yourself to risk when you buy drugs. You expose yourself to risk by putting funds in an account with which you're going to do that, because that's the vulnerable point. To well, a rip-off's always possible. Um, because obviously you need to exchange the money for the goods before mm -hmm. you receive the goods. Um, so it's a trustless system. Bitcoin is a, a trustless system. You know, it's it's made to facilitate uh, economic exchange between strangers. Mm -hmm. So that's out of like you know the, the money changing hands is kind of it's one way. It's irrevocable. But really, there's more money to be made honestly than there is on a ripoff. Much more money. You know. Same with same with street dealers. You know, if you, if you're kind of a reliable, honest street dealer who doesn't start smacking people around the face the whole time, you're going to earn a bit more money. But obviously, you've got to show your strength at some point. But it's the, it's the same business. Would you say that the demographic of the drug user in those markets are they predominantly more middle class, or would you say? And are we thinking along the lines that people that use street drugs are going to be? someone of lower socioeconomic status as opposed to the markets that are going on in the dark web? Do you know, they're anonymous markets um, and inherently you can't do a kind of social cultural analysis of the customer profile. Um, but I would say that it tends to be people who are, you know, more internet savvy, people who've, you know, learned some fairly complicated software, ultimately, you know, for most people, um, encryption software and Bitcoin itself and... Buying Bitcoin anonymously is quite a difficult task for many people. So it's kind of high-end. But again, Wi-Fi used to be beyond 50% of the people in this room. You know, it's, and now it's invisible. So these things, the, the systems are there and they can just be refined. Yeah, which is what's happening. yeah I mean, and is socially more, more, the more socially excluded you are, you know, certainly heroin and crack users and certainly kind of... Um, poorer parts of the country is less likely to be um, buying drugs over the internet. I mean, at the moment we're dealing with a bit of a, a purity crisis, kind of on the top end of MDMA. You know, it's almost too pure for what people are using at, at party street level. 
um, we've been talking, well, we'd like to talk about pill testing eventually because I think that there's a lot of good work going on with people that are telling people how to do good harm reduction. Would you say that there was a place for that years ago, the fact that we haven't even, we're only starting to address that now in the cultures that you specifically described, Decker? Would you say that, why, are we, why didn't we have that conversation then? I mean, I think we did have that conversation. It lasted about sort of 0.3 of a second, and everyone said, absolutely not, it's a terrible idea. I mean, it's not a new concept, is it? Uh, I think they were doing that in clubs 20 years ago in Amsterdam, and weren't they? Yeah. And there was a sort of a, a little bit of a conversation about whether we would do it. And as I say, little being the key word. Um, in, a, in a sense, that's... That's the bit that I don't really understand. I understand the explanation that drugs journalism is often um, exaggerated because it's a fundamentally salacious story and it makes people drop their marmalade and it sells news. I, I get that. What I don't understand, I'm curious about your experiences, is that I'm not sure that, that the majority of people want to, to, be, to, to have their false narrative corrected, to be told the truth. I don't know if you feel that you're, not, you're pushing an open door. It's very easy to talk amongst ourselves where we're all an open door, right? But I'm just not sure if you walk up and down Oxford Street tonight and you just pick random people and you start to tell them some things that are some fundamental sort of widely held mistruths about the drugs economy and tell them some of the things that you write about. I just, I'm not sure that this is received with enthusiasm and delight. That's amazing. How brilliant. Who knew that only 10% of, metho of, of, um, you know, of crack users actually become problematic? It seems to me that when you try and introduce this into the national conversation, people broadly don't want to know. And that's the bit that I don't understand. And it's sort of why the conversation was so quick about drug testing and uh, pill testing clubs. What's that about? Yeah, well, I mean, it, it, I mean that's why it's such a kind of a slightly Victorian attitude. You know, it's kind of that shove it under the carpet, pretend it doesn't happen. And if you talk about it happening, then it's going to happen more. It's going to somehow, if you talk about, if you're honest about drug use, then everyone's going to suddenly want to use drugs. Um, and that and that completely frames the whole problem with how drugs have been seen over the last few, you know, the last hundred years. It is, it is, it is kind of... It, and that's the, that, that's the government line, you know. If if you kind of if you talk about drug use and people using drugs, then it's going to encourage people to use drugs. So this is ridiculous kind of kind of knot that everyone's got themselves in. So so the less you you accept this truth, the more people will die, which is stupid. It's salience, isn't it? You know, it's how do you make a subject salient in society? How do you move it up the news agenda? How do you actually, you know, frame it in the way that you feel is positive and kind of proactive? I mean, I was on the Today programme a few weeks back with John Humphreys, and I was advising John Humphreys that if he ever did ecstasy, he should do it in halves. He should just drop half at a time. Because he was saying that, you know, these new super strength pills were extremely dangerous. And it's like, well, just take a half. And he was, he was shocked at this, you know. And we know what John Humphreys is like. You know, he's, he's always out there. But I don't know what could be more salient than teenagers lying in comas in Manchester and somebody saying, here's an idea that might stop that happening. That's pretty salient. You don't need to be a teenager in Manchester to feel that this is a story that connects with you. This is not esoteric at this point. No. 
That's what I don't understand. It's well, with the guy, the guy, one of the people who died in fabric, which resulted in his closure. I mean, he took. I mean, I can't remember the exact things, but he took shitloads of ecstasy. I think he took like three pills, and it didn't work. And it was the classic ecstasy death. You know, he took three pills, didn't think they were going to work. Then he took some more, and just overload. Is that right? Um, you know, and, and that's a, cl a classic young people's mistake of taking ecstasy. And the fact is, is that because there's whatever, you know, 200 million um, ecstasy pills taken every week in this country, um, you've got to kind of say, at some point you've got to go like, hold on, let's kind of try and um, teach people how to take these things because it happens. And, you, and, you, and, and, and by, 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 by telling people to do things safely, by showing them how to do things safely, I think it's a very old kind of attitude to think that you're su they're suddenly going to go crazy on them. You know, people just need advice. You know, like they need sex advice. It's like it's like trying to tell people in if you tell people in school, you know, how to, you know, about birth control and sex. That 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 old thing that everyone's going to suddenly jump on each other is fucking ridiculous. Sex education is a really good analogy in there yeah, because we 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 have had a progression of conversation there, haven't we? I'd say it's changed since my childhood, which is the... I kind of don't want to say, but it was the <laughs> early 80s. Um, and it has. It's progressed since then. We, we now have a harm reductionist approach on sex education. Do you, do you think we can get there with the same principles of just having a sensible, bloody conversation with drugs? Do you reckon we can do it? People would have believed that we'd have needle exchanges, you know? Needle exchanges were introduced under the Thatcher regime. Um, and that was, you know, one of the most progressive pieces of public health policy ever to actually offer injecting heroin addicts clean needles. You know, it didn't encourage them to inject more heroin. It just meant that they'd use clean needles. Foil distribution as well. We've had a conversation mm. on that. We know that, you know, bloodborne viruses are lessened if, you know, I mean, smoking heroin's got its own pitfalls as well. But it's marginally more preferable than injecting it. So we can have the conversation. And as you said, they, they were pretty early on. But why... But, but, Jason, do you think it, if there had been absolutely no danger of transmission of HIV from the heroin-using community into the non-heroin-using community, do you think that they would have introduced needle exchanges? That's, that's a good point. Though. That's the thing you're saying about salience, isn't it? I'm not... And can I just, just... I just want to make a point about the kind of... The lack of, the lack of understanding about drug use in this country is, 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 translates to a lack of understanding about the people in this country... Um, and subcultures and the way people live their lives and the reality of, of lives um, in Britain today. And, and that goes right from kind of, you know, homeless, heroin, crack addicts, to, uh, sorry, users, um, right to um, kind of people partying in underground kind of raves. There's, there's just, it's just it's a signal that there, there is a complete disconnect between... Um, mainstream society and and a lot of other people and cultures and 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 the whole drugs thing is is a signal of of that I think I mean I've kind of for a film that I made for Vice that is coming out on your TV screen soon um, it's called it's a show called Vice Land and it, and I was we were looking at the, I was hanging around with these two young, very young for the times, for this era, very young heroin and crack addicts. They were kind of 21 and 24. 
uh, Ronnie and Dennis, and I spent a lot of time hanging around with them. Um, and they, you know, that to, to everyone else, to to the to the average person, possibly, um, and I'm not blaming the average person, but um, you know, they are just like the scum of the earth. They spend their time nicking meat from Tesco's, selling it in part in the local pubs for a for a some gear and then it goes on and on and on again. But they they are the loveliest people. They're they are really sweet. And I I just kind of so so to me it, it's just a complete the drugs thing is almost like a side issue in a way. It's it, it it's a complete misunderstanding of a, a whole group of people. And and broadening that out into into third rail subjects generally is there, a, is there a responsibility from the media of creating these moral panics and also the projection of what the imagery is around certain demographics? Is the media to play... I mean, we could argue that certain right-leaning pieces in the Daily Mail are always going to be there to be marmalade droppers, but how much of the responsibility does come with being in the media and what you say and what gets out there to winning ears? Yeah, I think it's a big responsibility, but I don't think it's one that's going to likely to be discharged any time soon. I mean, my hunch would be... I don't know, I think I stopped... I sort of imagined that we were going to be stuck in the place where we are for the rest of my life and probably for the rest of my children's life. I just... Um, I, I think I, I had resigned myself to that. And I don't think that anything... I don't think that anything that gets written in the media is likely for any number of different reasons to change that. But I do think... For the first time, actually, in all of the... Uh, yeah, for the first time in my adult life, I suddenly think, hmm, I've got a hunch that public opinion is about to shift dramatically, and I think it is going to be moved massively by what's going on abroad. I had a really surreal... Com um, I was in Jamaica week, last week or the week before doing a job, and I had a free evening, and I met up with some white Jamaicans, a white Jamaican family I know well, and they're very respectable, and they work in the film industry, and... One of them is um, her partner runs the Jamaican Army, the Jamaican Defence Force, and um, there's a kind of very sort of preppy 24-year-old son there who's just back from New York. And, you know, this is kind of high-end Jamaican life. And they had with them two American basketball players who had come down because they are going into the business of cannabis cultivation. And, and Jamaica is now the first supply country, which has gone to the UN, so we're not going to do this anymore. There's a very interesting... And I'm sitting at the most respectable dinner table in Jamaica, and people are discussing in real detail how you, how you, how you distill odour out of a particular product, and then you put a certain amount back in, and whether there's a market in, in cannabis honey, and whether there's a market in cannabis yoghurt. I mean, it's a completely kind of conventional blue-chip conversation, only it's about cannabis. I think that it's going to be things that happen abroad like that, which change everything in here. I don't think it's in the gift of the media. Yeah, it's, well, it's their responsibility, but I don't think it's in the yeah, gift Yeah, well, what it is is going to be exactly that, uh, what's going on abroad, um, but coupled with the generational change in the UK. So, so um, there's absolutely no way that in um, 20 years' time, that, um, or, what it, yeah, 20 years' time, that the Daily Mail, for example, will be able to come out with so much bullshit on drugs because, because their readers will know different and will think different as well. And I, I, really, I really do think that. And, and I, so I think that it will be a co combination of um, international stuff going down with the, uh, the, the, the people in power, i.e. the newspaper editors and the politicians, thinking, OK, we need to 
bend to the will of the public because I think even though drug use is generally going down in this country, drug use is also becoming a little bit more acceptable and the conversation is a little bit more intelligent and less shock horror. But drug deaths are going up, aren't they? And this is the thing. Yeah, that's the old, that's the uh, that's the generally the old uh, heroin users from the from the eighties and nineties epidemic just dropping dead because their bodies are giving up. It's, it's, it's certainly not y- young uh, heroin users. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So do, do you think that we're likely, because we're always quite perverse in the way we measure success of drug policy. We always put it on how many people are using, how many people are not. It's just a very blank way of doing it. Do you think we can actually grasp the nuances within the discussion of there are other successes, other metrics to be had that are indicating that we're actually doing some sort of good? I, I think it's chaotic. I think that it's a very sort of chaotic system with loads of different inputs. And very often, it's a very unpredictable sector. Like when we talk about moral panics, there was a, a piece that I wrote when methadone was first discovered, and we identified the chemical kind of formulation of it, and we worked out how it was actually legal all across Europe. I wrote a report on it for Max that was picked up by The Guardian, then The Telegraph picked it up, and then you had The Telegraph editorial. So I'm writing a piece, a measured 
kind of analytical scientific piece about the emergence of a new drug, which is a very powerful stimulant and, you know, X, Y, Z. And then the Telegraph were publishing it, but unbeknown to the Telegraph editorial writers, underneath the editorials were actually adverts for Dialogram. So because Google AdSense and Google AdWords, dealers being 10 steps ahead of the Daily Telegraph, had bought uh, Google AdWords on those, on those kind of terms. So any time Google um, showed that that particular search term had been put into a piece, so you had these thundering editorials saying, let's stop this evil menace, and at the bottom it was saying £10 a gram, delivered to your house. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? I, I, I did a story looking at that a couple of months ago for Vice, l looking exactly at, do, through Google searches and all this business, um, historical Google searches, looking at every massive story about danger drug, like literally from 2009 to, to six months ago, this huge peak in people going, buy XX drug. So, so scare stories make people buy drugs, which is an interesting thing anyway, as in like, why do people just go, right, if someone's just dropped dead, or if the sun is going, don't take this drug, it's going to kill you immediately. Why do people go, like, fucking going to get it? Did you so, see that thing? And, and that's, just, that, that's, that's interesting anyway. But, but, but obviously, the, you know, the, the, the newspapers will be, with one hand, they're going like, hey, man, don't do it. But they, but they know that it's sell papers. That's why they're doing it. They're not, I don't think they're doing it because they, or maybe they are, they care for everyone. But, um, but whatever, it has this byproduct of making everyone want to buy it. Is that the oxymoron in, in its own sort of way of drug education? The fact that, just say no, you know, it, the phrase had to come out tonight. The fact that we have these, these, just these absolute opinions that just don't do drugs. And as you said, you know, the fact that these negative messages almost drive people to want to try. Just as I say, we had a conversation here with, with the Robin Ince tonight with Susie Gage and Simon Oxenham. We said that <laughs> whenever there is a drug story, like higher levels of purity and MDMA, Instead of it being a warning, people want to take that. How do we get around that? How do we get around the perverse nature of the, of the anti-messaging? I think the transaction is between an adult and a child. You know, the government is saying, we are adults and you are children, so you need to listen to us. And I think that nobody wants to be treated like a child. So I think really the, the, way, to, the way to address that is to, to, to speak equally to people and honestly, rather than kind of with prejudice and misinformation. Um, and, you know, with a bit of honesty, really. Are we able to do that, Decker? Because you, you, you walk in political realms, in the celebrity realms. It's still, drugs still get used as that leverage point that they just, we just had a scandal recently about vices in, in the political sector. Are we still using it as that, that just a punch still? It's an interesting thing. I think, um, you know, I mean, we've just had a Tory government for... A number of years, you know, led by somebody who has clearly used class A's and a chancellor who's clearly used class A. You, you know, we're talking about a generation of politicians who grew up in the same generation as us, you know, and in, and in the same circles and at the same parties, and, and there they are in Downing Street looking, you know, getting the vapours over the thought of cannabis being a class B drug. I mean, as if they were some sort of maiden aunt from Harrogate, you know. That's <laughs> So... Um, do, is that what they really feel about drugs? I, I'm tempted to say no. I'm tempted to say that we're at this kind of curious place where everybody's experience discredits the official narrative of, you know, just say no. 
but nobody wants to be identified. And I can and I can relate to this because you know I accidentally sort of identified myself twenty years ago um, as somebody who said, oh, "I think drugs, taking drugs is fine, isn't it?" And and got a lot of professional difficulty. You know, got into a lot of professional difficulties for that, and decided I was never going to write about drugs again. So. I, I understand that, but it's almost as if... I don't quite know. That's why I suspect it will come from abroad. It's almost as if we all know that this is true. You know, yeah, I don't really think newspaper offices and television studios yes. and Downing Street and Ministry of Health are full of people who don't yeah. know that you two are telling the truth. That would be my instinct. Yeah. But it's about what's, the, what's going to be... Are you going to spend the capital you have on putting your head above the parapet or not? That's... Uh, and... It, and that's why I think, in a sense, probably what will progress this forward will be something that none of us can predict. You know, it won't be somebody standing in the t- steps of Down- Downing Street saying, I've taken class A drugs. It'll be some weird mm. thing from left field that suddenly makes everyone turn around and say, oh, do you know, do you know what? <laughs> Maybe we need to change our minds. I think that. I think it will, I think it will be money. Um, I've just heard about a, an investment round in, in London. London is one of the, 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 the most lucrative uh, markets for private equity to invest in the US uh, emerging cannabis market. And, you know, there were $300 million raised in a day, and that will be invested in, in, in cannabis businesses. And I think that the money will change the politics because politics is just the administrative branch of business, isn't it? You know? So I think that the, the money will change the politics and then the politics will change the culture and think tanks will move in to, you know, convince people of the rectitude of the new wealth. I think that's what money will talk, you know. Can, I just, can you explain something, though? I remember being at Manchester University and it would sort of be 7 o'clock in the morning and we've all had a great night. And somebody, apropos of nothing, would say something like, would you want your kids to do this? And this would happen periodically and without fail every time, and I'm talking about students at this point, they would all say, oh, my God, no. And I would say, why not? I'd be heartbroken if my kids don't do this. And they were genuinely sort of stunned and bewildered at what I was saying. And there is something, I think that is a problem, that when people become parents... There's a kind of culture where you choose to forget certain things that you know, and I think that that does have to be overcome, and I don't know how we do that, but... That's a good point as well, because, I mean, I think you're all parents up here. So, and I asked Robin Insis, how would you bestow drug education onto your young ones? Can I just... I mean, just what I was going to say before is that, is that you know, the, the point of us... You know, one of the point... Oh, shit, sorry. One of the point... <laughs> <laughs> it's a podcast, Max. Um, you know, one of the th- good things about, you know, the, the good things about uh, us lot writing about drugs is because, you know, you hope that, you know, as long as you kind of get some truths out there that at some point it's going to kind of seep into the wall of... Um, of I, yeah, I don't want to hear, I don't want to hear. It's going to seep out there. Um... But and and, that, uh, and the same exactly the same goes for um, for for kids. You know, I mean, like you, as long as they got some sort of truth going on there, you don't want they don't want to be overloaded with it. They'll just go like go away. You know, I just stop talking about drugs. And he, my kid is like he's actually fascinated about drugs. He's eleven, which is slightly unhealthy. But um, it's just it's just like a just because he hears me going on about it the whole time on the phone and stuff. But he's interested in it. But not in a kind of a way that he's like, 
yeah, I'm going to desperate to try it, but he understands it a little bit, which I don't think is like a damaging thing. So, you know, it's just, as long as as long as they have an understanding and and they understand a bit of truth, then you can't. That's the best you can do. What was your strategy, Decker? <laughs> I've given this quite a bit of thought recently. I'm not quite sure why. I think it's partly because we've just moved back to London. And so suddenly the kids are seeing homeless people. They're seeing all kinds of lives that they didn't see in sort of rural, sleepy Kent. Um, and, it, and I realised that something to do with drugs came up recently and I realised that I was self-censoring and the kind of presumption that that would be responsible parenting because they're six and five. <laughs> but then it, it's just been on my mind lately. I suddenly thought, how mad to wait until the point when they no longer trust my authority, they're exposed to lots of other sources of less reliable information amongst their peer group, and the kind of basic sort of relationship of trust that they have with me now as a parent has become complicated by hormones and all the other stuff that happens at around the time when we're supposed to start talking to our kids about drugs. And so I've kind of made a policy with myself now that drugs will be something that we'll talk about a little bit now and a little bit, and by the time they're 10 years old this won't be a new topic of conversation. And I could be completely wrong about this, and I recognise that it's a slightly irregular approach, but I've got a feeling it might be better than waiting until we're supposed to when they start secondary school. What do you think, Mike? Do you know, I've been really troubled this week by the release of Nick Cave's album, um, what's it called, Skeleton Tree. And Nick Cave's boy, obviously, at 16 years of age, a couple of weeks back or months back, fell off the cliffs whilst tripping at Rodin down in Brighton. And I thought, you know, Nick Cave is not a man who's shy to an altered state, and I'm sure he's probably had a conversation with his 17-year-old boy. But, you know, if even in a family as liberal as Nick Cave's, your son can fall off a cliff tripping, then there's something fundamentally wrong with the way that we're talking to young people about drugs. I mean, not to blame anybody, but that's the... As, as a society, I think that that's a real danger. Um, my attitude has been that, you know, I, I've written a book about my experience with drugs and with my views on drugs, so, I, you know, I, I, can't really, I can't really hide that one or kind of prevaricate around it. So I'm just going to say to my, my son, um, if you want to take drugs, ask me, and I will get them for you. And if you want to um, do them, tell me when you're going to do them, and I'll pick you up at the end of the night as well as all your friends. Yeah, I don't mind. You can sit in the back of the car and talk nonsense, and then I'll take you home and put you in bed. Is he four? Three, actually. <laughs> but, yeah, so bad. but equally, I think I'd say to him, look, you know, don't take uh, Class A drugs until you're 18, and if you're going to smoke cannabis at 16, please don't use tobacco, because that's what got me addicted to it for, like, 25 years. So, you know, just, just to kind of mitigate it and be sensible and honest and say... It's fun, but don't be an idiot. Can I just say something? Um, yeah, I mean, in terms of, you know, we all kind of know this, I suppose, but, you know, in terms of drug education, um, and there's people in the audience here that can talk later about it. Blaine Stottard over there is pretty good on it. Um, so is Hadra over there as well. But, um, you know, I, I think there, there, there's some kind of statistic, as in, like, by the time kids finish secondary school, they've had an average of two hours education on drugs in their whole school life, which says it all. And we've recently had figures, I can't remember where they're from now, but we know that kids listen to their parents. It's, that's one of the, the major sources of education. So if we can't... And what you said, Mike, it, it's no different to what 
not even a fairly liberal parent, but you'd have that conversation, wouldn't you, if it was some uh, youngster going down the pub? You'd, you'd say, drink under my watch, I'll pick you up. So the sensibilities that we have that come with that conversation, it's all literally because of the noun, isn't it? Drugs, drink. You've just got to look after your children. <laughs> you know? and, and by the way, we will open this up to the audience, so get your questions ready as well, because we want to make this interactive, because that's one of the, the main points of this. But So kind of just to start closing up what we're talking about, how uh, we, we've said that change will come from abroad. We're, we're looking over at overseas what's going on in Uruguay, America, especially America. Do you think we will follow suit if America, if America go down their cannabis route? I mean, the chances are they're not going to be doing any federal reforms anytime soon. It's going to be state by state. Are we likely to do the typical UK thing and just follow suit? We did with the war on drugs, didn't we? <laughs> it's a good sign that we will. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm going to repeat my um, generational thing. Um, so I, I just think that, you know, the, the politicians kind of react to the press. And, I, and I, I spoke to Nick Clegg about this and he was a bit like, no, no, he was poo-pooing that one about the politicians kind of being scared of the press, but they w he would have said that anyway. But um, I, I, think, I think, you know, um, it's a generational thing. And I think, I think in 20 years' time, the, the press will understand the, the new... The, the generation uh, and their attitudes and their understanding of drugs and therefore the politicians will follow suit and things will change but in the UK it's a lot more sticky uh, than than other places I think Canada is the one to watch yes Canada you yes. know I mean Trudeau has nailed the frame and he's there saying we want to limit young people's access to cannabis we want to ensure high standards of purity and we want to make sure that it doesn't fall into the wrong hands so he's coming at it from a kind of public health perspective which is entirely reasonable when you're talking about you know a habit forming drug maybe not an addictive drug but for myself when i smoked cannabis it was incredibly habit forming i couldn't sleep without it i like to you know experience every cultural event in my life stoned and that's you know that's 20 years since i've done that but there was a good you know, there was a good number of years where I was stoned as often as I could possibly be. Um, now, Canada is going to kind of wheel out, uh, I think, a perfect set of reforms around recreational and medicinal cannabis. And, they're, you know, they're, they're a G7 economy. They're a serious country, they're a conservative country, and they're a risk-averse country. And I think if they get it right, and I think they will because they want to, um, I think that that tide effect, as it's being called, will come across the Atlantic. And I completely agree with what you're saying, Max. I think generational change is key. Would you say Tom Lloyd, Chief Constable Tom Lloyd here, would you say that that's how we're going to get it here, generational? Do you think we're going to... If we keep doing what we're doing with the messaging, if, do you think we can get there? Uh, it's inevitable we'll get there. That there will be um, government-regulated control of all substances that we consume, food and drink, it's um, it's crazy to have this um, artificial division, but I think we're all you know we're all agreed on that. Um, this this morning I went to the House of uh, House of Lords where the All Party Parliamentary Group on um, Drug Policy Reform, Baroness Meacher, Caroline Lucas, and others, uh, have just completed a seven-month um, study with a report by uh, Professor Mike Barnes, uh, and their three three recommendations are around medicinal use of cannabis, uh, and I think this could be the entry point. 
which is, if you like, you take the first brick out of the wall. And they're, they're recommending cannabis goes from a class Schedule 1 to Schedule 4, obviously, because Schedule 1 is no medicinal use, but the government licenses Sativex. So you've got the kind of crazy British... It's not even British compromise, it's just British... OK, let's call it cognitive dissonance in a legal sense, but, you know, whatever it is, it's mad. Um, and the second thing is we'll be prescribing drugs uh, through proper out controlled outlets. When the third recommendation... <clears throat> which was some cunning work, is um, uh, grow, your, grow a small amount of your own for medicinal purposes. Um, uh, I mean, there are a lot of cannabis activists who say, you know, just free the weed, but the fact is you've just got to do it in stages. So for that reason, I feel reasonably encouraged, but there was quite a good discussion about how you actually get members of parliament, because they're the ones who are going to change this ultimately, and how you actually engage with them. And there was talk about, do you do it publicly, or do you do it, under the counter, as it were, and ultimately under the counter is where it's probably going to work in that you're going to engage people without embarrassing them. The, I assume you wanted me to rabbit on just for a little bit, you know, otherwise you wouldn't have given me the mic. And as a former chief constable, basically you do... It's a kind of characteristic, you know, you somehow think that you know stuff. You actually very quickly learn that you don't. But I think that politicians view this as a low-priority topic with high risk, and therefore, they don't want to engage. Now, I know that in some ways you were saying, well, it'll be America, Uruguay, Portugal, Germany. Germany are going to legalise access to medicinal cannabis. It's going to happen. Um, I don't think you want to underestimate what the power of journalism is, particularly when it's a narrative. Because people... Why, why are soaps so popular? Because it's a narrative with characters that you engage with. Now, I think that you have got a responsibility, because you can write, to try and tell a story not only appealing to the general public, there's already a majority in favour of medicinal cannabis, but actually trying to create an environment where politicians think, you know, this is not as risky as I thought it would be. That there, there really are... I mean, if you, if you sit some of the people like Lara Smith who suffers huge... She was on the BBC this morning. She's a medicinal cannabis patient. If we start getting these stories out there into politicians and then saying, you presumably became a politician to help people, are you really going to be silent while these people are suffering because they can't get access to a simple herb? And these are the honourable people who don't want to break the law. I think a round of applause for Tom there. <laughs> Freestyle, in it. Um, Tom, can I just say I interviewed um, I interviewed UKIP's one MP this week, last week. I'm slightly last, um, last week, and um, I mean, whatever you think about UKIP, in a way, it's the party that's allowed to hold the unacceptable opinions, isn't it? And to sort of rewrite the terms of debate, and if they can be useful in that sense, then that's that's one function that they can perform. And the UKIP MP is an absolutely committed libertarian in every aspect of everything. And when I ask him about drugs, he says, you've got to be joking. And I say, and why? He says, well, it's a complete vote loser and we will be, we'll be in electoral oblivion if we, if we advocate for the legalisation of drugs. And so I think you are absolutely right. That's the problem. They need to know that that's no longer true. Would you say it is a vote loser? Because from our perspective, we can get in a position 
of feeling emboldened that reform is getting momentum. And this is something I wanted to speak to you about as well, is that from an outsider's point of view of reform, do you think we are getting momentum and is there things that we can do better? I think medicinal cannabis is the way forward. If you want to have any kind of drug law reform, you need to kind of change the, just change the frames of the debate and say this is actually helping people. There are children with epilepsy who are denied a medicine that stopped them having up to 100 distressing fits per day by law. So th this is a drug that absolutely helps children with epilepsy, certain forms of it. Um, it's, a, it's a useful drug in, in dozens of other cases. I had a friend who, with leukaemia who couldn't eat. Um, she had actually breast cancer as well and she couldn't eat unless she was smoking cannabis and she had to buy that in Cold Harbour Lane. And you know, the idea of my friend walking down the street and buying cannabis in that way was, was unthinkable, but it actually helped there with the, as an anti-emetic, so she was able to eat food and maintain her weight and actually be, and be strong. I've also known people with HIV who, who smoke weed, which again helped them to develop an appetite. So I think that to deny very sick people very effective medicine is, it, it's a fairly easy uh, argument to make to, to counter that. Yeah, I mean, this is politics, so... Um Obviously, the, the, what should be done is that drugs should be legalised um, and that should, people shouldn't be criminalised for taking, taking drugs and, and all this stuff. And, and obviously, there is a way of doing this, as has been done in America, via med medicinal cannabis. And if you have to go around the long way of doing it like that, that's the way you've got to do it. But obviously, ideally, just go like... The whole thing is ridiculous, sort it out now. But you have to go around this ridiculously slow route of, like, okay, medicinal cannabis, people are dying if you don't get it, can you do that? And you have to go, and it take years and years, you have to go around this ridiculous route because of politics and because of the stigma um, around drugs. And, you know, you know, drugs are plants and chemicals. And then there's, there's a, an amazing piece of research that I've just... I've only read the title of it, actually. Um, <laughs> but it, it's been... <laughs> but it's good. <laughs> anyway, um, but even the title is pretty good. I can't remember it, though. Um... <laughs> but it's very <damn> good. <laughs> uh, no, anyway. Um, but I, I, know, I know what he's on about. <laughs> it's a guy called Toby Seddon. Um, and he's basically saying... Oh, no, I read a little bit of the intro. Um, and it's basically saying that, you know, that the whole thing about the, the word drug is kind of a completely kind of bullshit phrase anyway. Um, and is the kind of, the, you know, it's the, it is the cause of kind of the racism of drugs and the kind of the social control of drugs. And I've lost my track now, but uh, I'm not supposed to do it on a podcast. But, I mean, you've operated at UN level. I mean, you sat in on some of the youngest meetings that have happened You've, you've been. I compared it to Starship Troopers, that giant, great realm that is clinical. It's big. Is it, do you, the YouTube, clip, YouTube clip that I saw of you at, U, at the UN was very much. There, there seemed to be an element of frustration in your questioning. Yeah. Is it as frustrating? That, I mean, because we operate at UN level as well. Thankfully, I've never been over there because I can't be bothered with it. I'd rather be faced with, with the general public. Is it as frustrating as what it, we it's think? It's the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen in my life. I mean, like, the, what was it? It was like the UN in Vienna discussion on the drugs thing of the thing of the thing of the thing. And it was like, it's everyone getting their knickers in a twist. Like, 
a thousand times. It's like, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's stupid. It, it, they should do some sort of kind of a modern dance about it because it, it's just so re- ridiculous and abstract and everyone talking, and it's, it's fucking plant. It's like marijuana grows out the plant. It's like, what's it done? But it, 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 it's it an just, industry, it, isn't it? It, it? it just turns into this crazy thing um, and things need to be brought down to the basics and we need to go back a hundred years, not become pagans or anything, but I oh know that's before that, but um, we need to go back a long time. <laughs> we need to go back a long time to just re-look at this thing because we've absolutely, totally complicated it when it doesn't need to be complicated and, and people are dying as a result. When, when you wrote the story about Neil Woods' book, uh, Good Cop, Bad War, we had such a response to that because I think it goes to what Max said. It decomplicated it. It made it completely on terms that people can understand, tangible. Did you, when you wrote it, when you had the interview with him, did you get that across from him that, you know, all of a sudden this is a realm that people need to hear about? This is something that people can connect to? Well, I mean, it's just the absolute joy of the authority of somebody who's been in the police force as an undercover officer for 14 years, isn't it? It's a good... It's... It makes it very, makes my job very easy because if you bring the authority of that job title or that former job title with you, then 90% of the reasons why people are going to dismiss you cease to apply in this instance. You know, you're not a hippie, you're not a fantasist, you're not... Da, 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 da. Um, so it made it very, very easy in that sense. Uh, and I can't think of another job that Neil could have done for 14 years that would have given him that same degree of credibility. I'm trying to say, you know, if he'd been a doctor, not so much, you know, if he'd been a judge, sentencing... No, not really, you know, you... And in fact, there are very few people other than, I suppose, maybe people who work on the ground providing sort of services for problematic drug users. There are very actually few people, but even they don't have anything like the access that Neil has to the reality of what fighting a drug war actually means. Um, I can't think of a more influential person than a former drug squad officer to turn around and tell that story. Uh, partly because he knows it and partly because he can't be dismissed. Um, I'm interested, Tom, in how many officers you think there are in the force across the country who basically have reached the same conclusions as Neil. Well, uh, I mean, Max will know, I think you've been in the back of a police van around uh, the West End talking to cops who are saying, why are we doing this? This is just a waste of time. I'm convinced that that is growing. I think there are a few who genuinely think only up to the point of seeing the, 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 the problems associated with uh, problematic drug use. I won't use the term addiction because it's, it's loaded and, and confusing, but people who have problematic drug use. And, um, and, and they realise increasingly that... Um, well, sorry, those people would say, you know, they're stealing from their grannies, we've got to lock them up. But I think there are increasing numbers who see beyond that and see the, the desperately sad, lost individual who never chose that, you know, at the age of 10, they didn't say, I want to be addicted to, sorry, I just used the word, <laughs> I, I, do, I don't want to be a problematic crack and heroin user and maybe, and maybe, you know, selling my body or stealing to get funds. Kids don't make those choices consciously. And I think an increasing number of cops at all levels, including at the chief constable level and including at the police and crime commissioner level, um, are there saying, we know it doesn't work, but the politicians aren't asking them 
to do something about it. It just takes people like Mike Barton in Durham, the Chief Constable, and Ron Hogg, who is at this launch at, at the House of Lords um, today, to say, we're not going to go after low-level um, growers and users. It's, it's a waste of our limited resources, and it's actually counterproductive and harmful and against the, and against the ethos of, of proper policing. You know, I, I joined to help people and catch criminals, and drug law enforcement does neither of those. It does more harm than good. And Ron was actually telling me that he thinks there are about seven police and crime commissioners who are starting to think we've got to do things differently. And interestingly, you talked about earlier asking the question, how do we bring about change? Um, you know, the power of Neil, uh, uh, perhaps to a certain extent, um, my influence as a former chief saying it was all wrong. And if we can, again, start helping police and crime commissioners and chief constables, understand and and I'm not going to say kind of be brave um, uh, but actually I am just be a bit brave and just say this is wrong and I think if the if the it's a National Police Chiefs Council now if they actually turn around and at the moment I don't, that's hard work but if they turn around and said to Theresa May and it's Amber Rudd now look, this is just unsustainable you've cut our funding, and this is a powerful argument, by nearly up to 30% in real terms over the last five, six, seven years. We cannot carry on. Um, and it brings me on to a point, if I might make it, about this trouble of giving me the microphone, uh, Jason, you should know better. The, the thing about drug policy, almost like every other, uh, unlike every other policy, is that it's completely evidence-free. There is no evidence basis. In fact, I, I don't know if you heard of the Transform Drug Policy Foundation, but they went to see Gordon Brown. Now, Gordon Brown was hammering the police service uh, throughout the early noughties, as I think they're called, um, uh, to say you've got to have, um, you've got to have deliver value for money. And, and, and so Danny Kushlik from Transform said, uh, would you do um, a cost effectiveness of drug law enforcement? Oh, no, 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 we can't possibly do that. And while I'm on it, Gordon Brown, I won't use the word dickhead because that's, that's on a, uh, it's on a podcast and recorded. This is the man who in a television studio said that skunk cannabis was lethal. So, you know, sometimes when I feel optimistic, I remind myself that he is no longer prime minister. Can I just have a quick word about coppers? Um, thank you very much. I mean, sorry, police. Um, they said poppers. <laughs> poppers. <laughs> I absolutely love them. They're great. No, I, in fact, the, the last time I took poppers was when I was 13, playing Robin Hood games when I was a school kid, and we got arrested by police. Anyway. That's um, an anecdote. But that was the last time. But on to coppers. Um, yeah, coppers, poppers, coppers. So um, speaking to lots of police as I do, um, generally, I would say that it's the case that the more seasoned, experienced police, and, and I'm also talking about the National Crime Agency here, as in the ex-SOCA, the, the, more, the more senior police, the, 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 the police with more specialism in the drug trade, the more likely they are to think, it, think the war on drugs is, is a waste of time. And we, I think we found that in Leap as well. That, yeah. I mean, you did a great article on the back of uh, Neil's book about the attitudes of the police. And even some of the anti-arguments that were used were very much in favour of reform in a roundabout sort of way, weren't they? They were 
there was a logic to their position of prohibition which actually extended to a regulated system. And that's what we found, is that sometimes it's the presentation of the, of the argument. It's not necessarily... The conclusion is all set. You know, I think most people in this room would agree that we need some sort of reform and regulated system. Actually, can we have a show of hands? I, I was supposed to do this at the start. If you do think we need reform, put your hands up. <laughs> yeah, this is brilliant for the podcast. I should take selfies and put them up there on the rolling link. And then if you, if you think that we need to remain with our drug laws or strict, have a stricter system, put your hands up for that. Just one. Well, very, and again, very brave of you to say that, and thank you for doing that. Because, I mean, sometimes it, that's half the battle, is just having the conversation. Sometimes you can't get an engagement. And I think that's the true of some third-rail political subjects, is you can't always always get that conversation going. I mean, it seems to me that the one most obvious sort of um, source of change, or force for change, and the most powerful leverage that they would have, the constituency, is people whose son has just died of taking ecstasy or whose daughter um, has uh, um, has really damaged her health by using legal highs that are actually very, very damaging to her health and she was buying them instead of, uh, instead of um, the non-synthetic version that she would have chosen. People whose lives are driven to be a misery because of dealers outside their houses or violence that's done... There, I mean, it would not be difficult <laughs> to draw up a very long list of all of those people. If instead of them say, venting their fury at the drug dealers or the drug users, which is the only two choices they have, they can either be angry with the drug dealers or they can be angry with the drug users. If all of those people turned around and said that they were angry with the law, that would be the most powerful thing you could possibly achieve. Now, I don't know how you get to that place, but it seems to me the grieving parent whose child has been, who's lost a child because of the law is an even more powerful advocate for change than somebody in a wheelchair with MS saying, I want to smoke a spliff. I think that's... Absolutely. And there, there is this thing about drug dealers, actually, where like, all drug dealers are evil, which mm. is, which is a, a, a massive thing that I write about in my books. I've met a lot of drug dealers. Um, and, there, and there is this, you know, it is kind of... It, it's, it's not right to, 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 to say this because a lot of, you know, the, the kind of the hidden victims of the drug war in a way are young drug dealers, you know, a lot of, I think it's something like a quarter of uh, people um, prosecuted for cl uh, dealing class A drugs in this country are under 21. Um, and a lot of these people aren't, you know, you can't call them evil drug dealers, you know, they're, they're, they're kids who have got involved in it from generally poverty. Um, and I, I just I just think it's 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 not kind of right to... to um, to monster people in this way? But I think if we look internationally, you know, we can get quite parochial, I think, in our view of, of the, the drug problem, the drug, the drug culture. If you look at the, you know, the fatality rates in Mexico in the last 10 years, there's been like 150,000 people killed. And in Colombia, likewise, and throughout Peru and Latin America and, and Afghanistan. now the Philippines is, is coming up with their different string of the war on drugs. Which yeah. is, I think we've got time for one more question. If, there you go, nice. Oh, we got two, actually. Right, we'll go for two, and then we'll wrap it up and let everybody get back out in the hot streets. Where are we? There was one. There we go. Thank you very much. Um, my question is, uh, what happens in the future when and if drugs are legalised? What happens to, to your jobs? Um, what happens to the, the reporting of drugs? Is it going to be... 
is it going to be more intensified? Is it going to be more, is it going to be dissipate? Like we think about um, cigarettes, you know, what happens? What do you guys talk about? Okay, I've already planned that. Uh, I'm going, yeah, I'm going to write about life on Mars. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so I'm going to go along to the, to the first uh, trip to Mars um, and just kind of tell people, report from there and tell people what it's like and, and about the drug scene there. I, I thought I might buy a, a polytunnel and move to Wiltshire and grow cannabis. That's, that's, my, that's my retirement plan. No, but seriously, I think that, yeah, that it is an industry and it is a kind of... You know, it's a sector that we work in, but news will constantly... It doesn't really matter what the law is. If the law's changing, that's news, and if the law's changing, then there'll be feature stories and investigations and interesting anomalies around that. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I think the bigger question, really, is what's going to happen to journalism, you know? I think that's the bigger one. That is, there's going to be a rolling process to this, isn't there? There's going to be people that will be joining new industries, so there's... There's always going to be a new realm to this, isn't there? I think you can see what's going to happen in any kind of future version of drug policy by looking at the US right now. It's become a connoisseur luxury market. I interviewed a guy the other day whose company has sold um, how many million? Two million vaporizers at $200 each. And these things are like iPod-style vaporizers, really minimal. And all it is is a heated chamber with a mouthpiece on it. It's like $20 worth of equipment. You know, and they're selling them for two hundred dollars. They've made two hundred million dollars in a year, so I think that's what's going to happen. Have you had one of those um, ganja vaporizers? Yes. Would you like it or not? Um, no, I didn't. I didn't really get stoned off it. No, I couldn't. I don't think it did it properly. Okay. This is the first time we've had product reviews on it. Well, <laughs> well done. Yeah. And then we've got a question over here. Thanks, Jason. Um, I'd like to pick up on the discussion that Max said that he'd, uh, he'd had somewhat unsuccessfully with Nick Clegg about the degree to which uh, media exerts influence over policymakers. If you speak to people like Dave Nutt or, or Molly Meacher, that influence in respect to drug policy is enormous. Uh, that's, that's the position that they take. I suppose that you have to take into consideration the fact that uh, a large percentage of the, of the public, the voting public, their major source of education, education uh, about drugs comes directly from the media. So my question is, uh, had those demonizing media narratives in respect to drugs not existed, or had uh, regulation of accuracy been more strictly enforced in media, uh, would we have seen policy change in the UK happen decades ago? Do you think it's the major limiting factor? I, I, think, um, I think you're right. I think that the media's got an enormous influence on it. But I think it's a question of, uh, of, of political expediency. It's not a vote winner. You know, the majority of people in the United Kingdom do not support the legalisation of drugs. And so the, the, the numbers are simple. Most people won't vote for a party that would do that. Britain's a conservative country, it's a risk-averse country, and, yeah, I think, uh, I think there's just an awful lot of work to do until we get to that point. Yeah, I think Descartes is a good person to answer this, because as in, like, you know, you worked in national newspapers for a while, and you have got a good, you know, a good idea as to what's going on there, and, and the attitudes of senior editors in all the papers, what do you reckon? I think if... Um 
if newspapers thought that their readers wanted to discover the truth, and crucially, if MPs, if politicians thought that there were votes in it for them, I think they would change their mind overnight. <laughs> you know, there is not some deep-seated hostility to the kinds of things that we're talking about this evening. There just isn't. Um, but the question, again, we come back to is, how do you create that tipping point? <clears throat> um, and I think I think that the media has a greater... I think, I think the media has a greater responsibility than I thought two hours ago. <laughs> um, but I suspect that it, it in itself isn't going to achieve those aims. That would be my... I mean, and just to sum up, I mean, it was mentioned in my book that um, there was a an ex-BBC uh, guy, home 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 um, affairs reporter, John Silverman, and he did an academic study into the influence of um, the media on drug policy. And his conclusion was that there is no other area of government policy uh, more influenced by the media than drug policy, and that says it all. As well as quite siloed, if you look at the kind of the, the, the drugs correspondence that write for the Guardian or the Telegraph, it's never a specialism. You know, it'll be like a home affairs editor or like a health editor. So it always comes from those perspectives rather than from, you know, a, a, a law change or a policy change perspective, an advocacy perspective, or like a lobbying perspective. It's always within various other silos within the newspaper's uh, output. That's why writing about drugs is so interesting is that it, it's a subject area that includes crime, health, culture, poverty, I mean, it, globalization. I mean, it's a huge um, overarching area. So, uh, you know, I suppose it's kind of, it's, it's difficult to try and nail it down into to one thing. But yeah, I'd love to um, get paid by the New York Times to do write that. It's like, and you can add to that chemistry, sort of sociology, culture, um, technology. Now you know it's, it, it crosses so many different things in geopolitics. Everything. It's I think it's seen in this very narrow. I mean, there's the talk of the Overton window around politics and what's acceptable within current political kind of paradigms. Drugs at the minute just exist in a crime perspective or in a kind of you know evil dealer pushes and these terrible innocent young girls who've died on their first ever ecstasy tablets. You know. So I think that there just needs to be a, a broadening of the, of, of the scope of the way stories are covered. All right, so let's just do a quick summary. Get any plugs in that you want and just give us a, an outlook of where you think we're going to go, any predictions. Just summarise what you reckon. Just to put you on the spot. Yeah, I think I totally agree with Mike that Canada's the biggest thing that we've got coming. I'm also having the idea of pitching the idea to the Guardian editor that we do have a drugs correspondent. It's not an idea that I'd come across before, but I think it makes complete sense given what's going on internationally and nationally. Um, and I don't think it's beyond the wit of man that in five years' time every newspaper will have a drugs correspondent. Well, there is in Colorado. You've got a whole sector dedicated right. to it. You've got the cannabis. And, and it's, it's now getting to the point where you are having correspondence specifically for this area because you can't keep on top of it all, can you? It's just... Everything, every day there's something new. So, yeah, by all means, <laughs> do us a favour and try and work that in there. But what do you reckon, Mike? Where, where do you think we're going? Canada's definitely the one to watch, we agreed on. I, I think I'm a techno-evangelist. Um, I think that the internet um, will change habits. I think it will change the market. I think if we were to, you know, 
formalize the dark web market and actually say, if people want to buy drugs, then they have to seek it out online. They can buy it privately, have it delivered to their homes, consume it privately, and actually remove the kind of the street dealing scene, remove domestic premises being used to sell drugs, actually make it into a private act between consenting adults and the privacy of their own home, delivered by mail. So it was actually something that was not in the public or retail space. So it was something which was entirely a matter of conscience for you and your family, and you took the health risks that you decided to take or not. I think internet delivery of, uh, of all drugs to consenting adults will be... That would be my preferred model for the future. Well, that's exactly how they did it when they decriminalised homosexuality. It was, a consenting, it was an act between two consenting adults in private. That was a crucial bit of the legislation that got it through, you know, and from there we now have an entirely unrecognisable world. But in private was key. They didn't want it um, being shoved down people's throats, you know. And that's a very interesting um, echo that it strikes. You've got to bring people along on the argument. You know, these, these people have got diametrically opposed positions to most people in this room, and they're the most important ones to speak to. You know, speaking to each other, we can all, you know, applaud each other's comments. We need to persuade the people that disagree with us. So it falls to you, Max, for the last word. Where, where are we going with this? Amen. No, um, yeah, I mean, I, I just... I mean, I suppose, talking from a personal kind of thing... Um, Whatever happens, you know, it's going to... Uh, just adding the journalism bit into it, you know, whatever happens, it is going to be interesting. Um, because this is a subject that involves, you know, it involves kind of hard business. It involves people, for pers various personal reasons, getting, com getting out of it, going into altered states. Um, and I think... Yeah, I, I just think whatever happens, it will be, it will be an interesting ride. And I mean, and that's that's why I've written about drugs for the last flipping fifteen years or whatever it is, because and I, I've got quite a short in, in, in te attention span, um, <laughs> intention span. Uh, <laughs> I've got, and and every time I kind of think, God, I'm a bit bored of this. Uh, something comes up. So yeah, so all I'm saying is not very actually very clever, but um, I'm just saying that it's going to just get more and more interesting because it's just such a, an unbelievably interesting part of life. Did you write about the crack squirrels? Was that you? <laughs> that was me, yeah. The crack-addicted squirrels. <laughs> Max wrote a piece about squirrels in Brixton that were actually finding um, rocks of crack that had been discarded by crack dealers in Brixton and then they were burying it and then they were eating the crack and becoming addicted to crack. Uh, it's I... the best story <laughs> I've ever read in my life. Well, I'm going to link to Thank that you. one on the podcast. So, from from the audience perspective, if you just you know, if you can carry on getting involved, if you can share the podcast around, if you can just get in, think of ways of getting in new ears. Preferably not getting squirrels addicted to crack because I keep gerbils and I don't, I don't need them getting addicted to anything other than nuts and seeds because they're bizarre. Anyway, on on that note of squirrels and gerbils, thanks everyone for coming tonight and good night. Well, we covered a lot in that one, and I'm hoping to get Decker, Max, and Mike back again for some next episodes because they, I think they've got a lot to give in this conversation. And 
just a bit of housekeeping now. If again, if you can find us on iTunes, give us a rating and a review, that'd be fantastic. Find us on Acast. Um, thanks to Nikki, the producer, who again weathered the storm in Waterstones with us. It was a hot night when we recorded that one. The wizard that is, and he's going to tamper around with this because he's got the ultimate say. He's got the fingers on the button. So do your worst, Nikki. I can live with it. Thanks to Drew, Let Me Look TV, for helping us out on the recordings. Again, we're going to put these recordings out so you can actually visually see them uncut as well because there's a lot we have to cut out. If you fancy getting down to see us at Waterstones, check out uh, Leap UK at ukleap.org because we're always going to have events coming out now, lots of different interesting ones. Getting ready for our next one as well, so find a link on there. Uh, support us at UK Leap on Twitter and ukleap.org on Facebook. Uh, follow Scrooby's Pit because he's brilliant. Uh, I think we just hit, well, I say we, uh, I think Stop and Search is the, the straggler of the Distraction Pieces Network, but I think we just hit 7 million downloads in total on the Distraction Pieces Network. How did that happen? Well, obviously, Scrooby's Pip. But um, thanks again, and tune in again. We're hoping to continue this discussion until, well, until conclusion, which is regulation and legalisation, so whenever that be. And also thanks to Johnny Borrow as well for lending us his song 60 Thompson, which is currently doing our intro and outro in. Um, I think it fits perfectly, so thanks Johnny for doing that. So until Stop and Search episode 6, which is coming up soon, thanks a lot for joining us. Bye. Behind your barricades Yeah, but how long can I stay? Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.